1: Hey, Rockheads, take your ferret out of the microwave and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the Internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 289, guest Pablo Castro, recorded live Monday, October 29, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by... Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now bringing world class expert led training in C Sharp, ASP.NET, VB.NET, SharePoint, BizTalk, Team System, and Workflow Foundation on site to your development team. Details online at www.Franklin's.NET. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service online at www.telerik.com and by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who realized he was dyslexic when he went to a toga party dressed as a goat, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much
2: and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin recording from the home office today.
0: How you doing, Richard? I'm doing well. It's glad. I'm glad to be home. I'm only home for like 24 hours. Then I'm off to Barcelona. You gotta love that. Uh, you know, love that. I, and I remember last night I'm open to you about my life and I'm like, I'm an idiot. Right. You made this <laughs> life. You signed yeah, we up. We made for this. this life. We have worked hard for this <laughs> life. And you know, it gets tough when you're, I did seven conferences in 12 weeks or so. Whoa. So in the middle of that, it's hard, but for the most part, it's, it's the coolest job I've ever had. Well, we're hoping that uh, you out there are having as good a
2: week as we are, and uh, let's kick it off right with uh, Better Know a Framework. Excellent. All right, Carl, what you got for me? So this week, I'm going to talk about iClonable, the iClonable interface. Yeah. Last week, you did iDisposable. Now you're doing iClonable. Yeah. I figured I might as well get some interfaces out of the way. So iClonable yeah. is an interface that gives uh, y- you a clone method and don't use it. Okay, moving right along to the email. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, the reason, and, and I got this right off of Brad Abrams' blog, and it makes perfect sense to me, is that there's really two ways to implement a clone um or a copy of an object. A deep copy or a shallow copy, right? Right. A shallow copy is going to just give you the properties and methods uh, on the outside. And then any objects that uh are properties, those also have properties and meth- you know, those also have properties, right? Right. So a deep copy will go all the way down recursively until there are no more properties left to uh, to to copy. However, a shallow copy will only give you that top layer. And okay. they're really... Yeah, because too- I can see a
0: deep copy being dangerous.
2: Well, in fact, when you do uh, a serialization of an object with a binary formatter, you get a deep copy. But you don't always right. want a deep copy. Right. Sometimes you need it, but sometimes yes. you don't. So Brad says, basically... That, um, you shouldn't use iClonable because it's just a single clone method and there's no way to tell whether it's deep or shallow. So the best thing to do is to create your own methods, a deep clone and a shallow clone. And, uh, really, the iClonable is just the clone method. That's all there is to it. Right. So it's not like, you know, it's not a ridiculous, uh, ridiculously difficult interface to figure out. So there you go. I'm going to link to Brad's, uh, blog where he talks about this and, uh, i it's great, but don't use it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny too. Well and Brad is is the source of all light when it comes to the uh the framework often. Right. You know, he's he's got some of the best books and some great thinking around it. Yep. So what do you got for me today? I'm gonna go back to the whole GUID discussion one more time just because Jim Keita wrote such a great email I couldn't resist it. Okay. Let me read this. Uh, I know I'm very late to this discussion only because I just heard the podcast this morning. But when I heard Carl mention in 282 that he uses random number generators to generate GUIDs, and I do pronounce it GUID, I thought, oh, crap, you've lost all the benefit of a GUID, but whatever floats your boat. I like a guy like that. It's like, you know, I disagree with what you're doing, but if it makes you happy, go ahead. <laughs> Goods are guaranteed to be unique, but not necessarily random. If you look up the RFC for UUID, that's RFC 4122, you will find the definition to be very deterministic as it includes information about the time and location that the GUID is generated. But the algorithm is fashioned to generate a GUID that is different from any other good in the entire universe over time. Didn't we already talk about this? We, we did, but he digs in a little further and deals a couple of other elements I think are interesting. Okay. There is a problem with RFC 4122 UUIDs in that you could reverse engineer where a unique ID was generated from. And the reason is that the other thing they use to make it unique is the MAC address. So if you have a date and time stamp and a MAC address, you're pretty much guaranteed uniqueness because Macs are unique completely. And then you throw in the timestamp, you know, that's about it. Unless you yourself are generating two GUIDs at the same millisecond, you're never going to run into each other. But the problem, of course, with a Mac is they can find you, right? That's sort of a privacy issue. Mm. So, and then he goes into a little side note here, which I think is interesting and, and real worth bringing up. As a side note, SQL Server 2005 provides two functions for creating new GUIDs, new ID and new sequential ID. It is important to understand that while new ID provides a GUID guaranteed to be unique against all other GUIDs generated by new ID, and new sequential ID is guaranteed to be unique against all other GUIDs generated by new sequential ID, it is absolutely not true that a GUID provided by new ID is unique against GUIDs provided by new sequential ID. Mm Mm-hmm. From the very fact that the two algorithms are different, the space of GUIDs generated by the two methods are guaranteed to overlap in at least one place and time. I have seen database professionals change the GUID generation method from one to the other within a particular production application, and this is cause for great concern. If you start with one method, you need to stick to it unless you want to regenerate and re-reference all of your GUIDs using the new mechanism. Now, this hmm. is getting into some database related issues that, uh, that Jim's talking about, which obviously I care a great deal about. You know, normally GUIDs guaranteed unique, not necessarily random, hmm. but they're not necessarily sequential either. And in databases, that can be quite painful. You prefer yeah. to sort of write sequentially. It's better for the indexes. So regular GUIDs. Caused grief in databases that performance issues. If you're trying to create a thousand rows or 10,000 rows all at once using goods as unique identifiers, that was a lot more painful than when they came up with this new method of new or sequential new ID.
2: You know, I remember having this discussion with uh, some guys I was working with back in the SQL 6.5 days. Right. And there really wasn't anything there. GUID there was wise. no solution
0: to it at that and, time,
2: and that we were talking about MAC addresses and and timestamps back then. And I just uh, thought to myself, "Oi, oi, oi!" You know, uh, you know, we weren't doing that. Of course, we we were just using the basic identity stuff. You know, the auto. Well, it's I, interesting. I think they were just re- called auto incrementing integers back then.
0: Well yeah and, and we still use those all over the place in a database and in terms of just speed of writing rows it's hard to touch a long int incrementing right but we were dealing with data that had to be unique in the world and uh trying
2: to come up with some unique identifiers we were running up against that back then so you know these issues don't go away they just uh we get new tools and 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 I'm glad that you read that 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 was a, a unique uh twist on
0: the problem well, and I think I've just about done good to death, so I'm going to let it go now. All right. Thanks very much, Jim. Yep. Yeah, we'll be sending you a mug. If you got any uh,
2: emails or suggestions or anything like that, send them to dotnetrocks at franklins.net. And hey, you know, our friends uh, down in New York City, Greg Brill at Infusion, they're still hiring people for the New York City tour. If you think you got what it takes to uh, be moved to Manhattan, for a year and live rent free in an apartment in Manhattan, and command a pretty decent Manhattan salary, enjoy city life for a year. You want to check out this blog post uh, at shrinkster dot com slash kh six detailing everything. And you know, those guys also have openings in London. That's right, London, the UK, and in Boston. Cool. So let's get on to the show, shall we? Uh, Pablo Castro is our our guest. Uh, Pablo is a technical lead in the SQL Server product group. He currently leads the Astoria effort, as well as some other future components of the Microsoft data platform. Welcome, Pablo. Hi there. How are you? Great. How are you? Astoria, how yeah. much time you have today?
3: Well, I have a little bit. <laughs> <laughs>
2: This is the honestly the first I've heard of it. About ten minutes ago. Okay. And um, why not just tell everybody what it's all about?
3: So, Astoria is about. Um, it's like at a high level, it's about creating services that are data centric and uh, in a way that is web friendly. Um, so, essentially, Astoria is a sort of is a bunch of technology and also a set of patterns for. Uh, for sort of for building services that expose data to the web and for consuming those services, uh, the idea is that you know we're just grabbing, a, we're we're putting together uh, bits and pieces of well-known, established technology, trying to invent as little as possible and uh, enable sort of various applications out there to expose the data to the web. Uh, in a way that other applications out there can easily consume it with a very, very low bar of entry.
2: So basically, it's a, a web service wrapper around a data layer. It's a web service data layer.
3: Yeah, you can call it that. that you know, web services is a loaded word these days. Sure, but, uh, sure. I mean, it's a service that is web facing, and uh, and it wraps around your data. Clearly, yes.
2: Okay. Now um, we, I got a couple of questions just right off the bat. First of all, and I know you're going to get into this when you describe a you know it in a little more detail but uh it's based on the entity framework which isn't shipping yet
3: Yes that's right And uh, Richard
2: has Richard and I have been placing side bets as to whether it'll ship at all but this clearly <laughs> Oh
3: come on Well this cl-
2: well you know given the history of those kinds of projects it's,
3: I know I know I know am
2: But this is clearly a product that is utilizing it inside Microsoft and both of us think that that is fares well for the entity framework
3: Yes yes um. So, okay, fair enough I, I mean, I'll take the blame you know, we, We've we uh, not shipped a couple of these <laughs> But, uh, so This one is going to ship I know, you know uh, There's nothing I can do here Like over the phone to No, to, no,
2: we'll just assume that it's going to ship But uh, <laughs> uh,
3: let, let's say for a second that it ships Yeah, let's, and, all, uh, let's and, start and yes, with that assumption Yeah, so yes, Astoria builds on top of it So So, yeah I mean, in the past, there have been sort of various reasons why these things didn't ship, and, uh, you know, we can go make history, but, but I, like, I think the high order bit here is that, so, they've, just the very, the very fact that other products are taking a dependency on it clearly indicates that, uh, sort of, there is a strong assumption across the board that this thing, uh, will ship and will ship as planned. And, uh, quite honestly, like, I also, I'm, like, I'm an active member of the entity framework team, and, uh, so I sort of I can see the product you know coming together and all that and uh so the empty framework is done. I mean it's it's going through the last baking uh period you know, where you close any remaining issues, work on the fit and finish and so on, and uh it's in good shape and it's on track for shipping when whenever
0: uh but not shipping as a part of Orcas.
3: It is not shipping as part of Orcas, yeah. So Orcas will ship uh so late this year and then uh early next year or sometime uh, sort of uh, next year uh Clearly, sort of in the first half, we will we will go ahead and ship the NDD framework. Um, so it will be sort of an add-on, uh, but it will look and feel as part of the platform. Sort of the stuff is in the system namespace. Uh, the tools are very sort of deeply integrated into Visual Studio and so on. So once it is installed, there will be no seams between the Entity Framework and the rest of the .NET Framework.
0: Okay. Maybe, so, maybe we need to go through the Entity Framework again. I mean, we had Dan Simmons on a few months ago to talk about it, but now that it's yep. closer to finish, like you said, it's basically baked. Yep. What does it look like?
3: So, you know, it looks like, so it's mostly, for the most part, is, I'm sure uh, you had a deep a deep uh, conversation with, with Danny. Uh, so we... We haven't made large changes. So the entity framework is what we sort of we said is was going to be. So it's um you know, it's a framework that enables developers to work at the conceptual layer. It has a powerful mapping in engine built in. And um it has a nice, fancy object services layer on top of the whole thing so that uh, if you're working on your business logic and using a .NET language, then uh, you feel right at home. Your ob- your business objects are .NET objects. Your query language uh, can be language-integrated query or link, uh, so you never uh, sort of open a quote, and uh, you don't need to use anything outside of your development environment. So it looks pretty much uh, like we said it was going to look uh the one other thing is that since then we've taken a lot of feedback uh from our users through the our beta cycles and through sort of vi- various sort of uh uh channels that we have with our developer community and uh, we've incorporated a lot of feedback uh from from the sort of developer community at large uh, so most of the tweaks that you'll see now are direct result of what we've heard out there and uh, sort of our reflection of that into the into the product.
0: Well, I, to me, this looks like the CTP model working. That You yeah. get a chunk of yeah. code out there with no obligation attached and see what people do with it.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, we're pushing it more and more, right, with the entity framework, uh, we took a bunch of feedback, and we are incorporating it now as much as we can. of course, you know there 's always stuff that you leave for the next version because you, otherwise you will never ship anything right uh, yeah. but uh, but yeah it 's clearly working, and um, it worked well enough that for Astoria, we went one step further and um, and we should ship the prototype like usually you build a proof of concept before you go into a product right uh, but that those proof of concepts usually never see the light of sight mm-hmm. the sort of the light of day right. uh, uh, whereas and um it worked well enough, and we got enough feedback in previous cycles that for Astoria we said, okay, we'll just go for the whole thing. And we took the prototype that was literally a prototype; it was not meant for production or even close to for production use. And uh, we just shipped that and to get as early as a feedback as possible.
2: Okay, so let's get back to Astoria for a bit. I'm curious as to, you know, syntax and how it's used, and you know, to what extent uh, you have SQL-like syntax in the URLs and and uh, all of that stuff. Give us a little bit of uh, a little bit more in depth overview here of what's okay. what.
3: Okay, used. so uh, let me highlight the first thing I think uh, we should highlight is the fact that uh, so Astoria is is a way of of exposing data in the most general sense. It's like I know there is almost an implied tie between. Um, data and databases, but the reality is that especially current, like these days, if you look at the web, there's plenty of data sources out there uh, that range from, you know, from actual database kind of stuff all the way to, you know, Flickr and Facebook and, uh, you know, uh, RSS feeds, which exists pretty much for everything out there. Uh, so we we see data as uh, as the sources for Astoria in the most general sense. And uh, there are some rules on how to plug in the details and... Uh, and, and you know, in general, how to interact with Astoria, and we'll get into that in a second. But in principle, when we talk about Astoria as a way of exposing data, we mean it in the most general sense. Uh, we need—I mean, this needs to be structured data or semi-structured data at some point. But other than that, uh, it, it has no particular or technology—not particular uh, technology that needs to be used for sort of storage or anything I like see.
2: that. I um, see.
3: So, in principle, what Astoria does is there is a server component, and uh, which you run in in if you're exposing data to the web, in, you're running some web server here. If you're exposing data, say, inside your enterprise, then you will run it in some web servers within your enterprise. And um, what that server component does is it unifies the, the a URI format. I mean, we picked a format, and it's important to pick one. We'll get uh, deeper into that later, but it's important to get one for the sake of a very uniform interface. The one URI format we picked is simply a format that follows or layers very naturally on top of the underlying data model that we use uh basically since we're gonna we're going to expose data sources from very various uh technologies and uh sort of that range from databases to sort of feeds to other arbitrary data sources out there uh we said let's make the data more or less look alike so uh, we we took the the entity data model or e d m um the e d m there is some i said there's a bunch of background about it and uh uh, there is there is uh, papers written about it that are available in our website that talk about the details of the data model. But in principle, there are two elements that are interesting. There is uh, entities and relationships. So uh, from the from the web service interface, this is nice because so what we do in Astoria is we take these models, regardless of how they are backed by physical storage, and uh, we expose this model through a REST interface. And this REST interface takes every entity and turns it into a resource, and it takes every association between two entities and turns it into a link. So there's a very simple, very clean translation from uh, what is the input source and what is the the visible uh, set of data in the REST interface. Uh, So from there, building URIs is actually fairly straightforward, because now we can simply say, look, we have a bunch of containers, and those containers contain entities. So the URLs are pointers to those entities in those containers. Uh, so the syntax is as simple as we say, you know, the root of the service, and then we say slash container name, and then we use parentheses and then put the the key in there. Uh, and uh, so simply you can say if you have a customer's container, you can say slash customers parentheses one, two, three, and that is a URI that points to the resource uh, uh, at the customer resource in the customer's container, which has a key of one, two, three.
2: Hey, this is Carl, I just want to take a minute out of the show to tell you about Telerik's Q2 2000 tools update, which can be summed up this way, blazing fast performance for ASP.NET, WPF-like visual effects for Windows Forms, and codeless reporting. The Ajax-based content editor is now 76% faster and much more intuitive. The Grid also received a performance boost, plus PDF export, frozen columns, and they've even added a new awesome scheduling component. What I find even more intriguing is Telerik's Windows Form Suite. It's unbelievable that it offers WPF-like visual effects like scaling, rotation, object motion, transparencies, and so on without WPF. As a result, you could have grids, tree views, ribbons, and more with a previously impossible level of interactivity and appeal. Telerik has recently added cab support, which makes the component set a perfect fit for large enterprise applications. Lastly, with Telerik reporting, you can create advanced business reports in Windows, Web, or PDF format using pretty much design time only. Wizards, expression builders, and converters help you with the design, styling, and integration. You'll also be amazed to see some unique features, like CSS-like styling and conditional formatting. See what all the fuss is about. Download a trial at Telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for sponsoring .NET Rocks.
0: So it seems like you've essentially eliminated the concept of the method, per se, that it's just... It's always get, and here's the the entity I want.
2: And you basically created a little syntax for selecting, you know, in the URI. And, and my first thought here, Pablo, is, uh, you know, I, I guess that, that works really well with a lot of other data sources. When you're using SQL Server, are, are store procedures are possible, or is that just dinosaur thinking?
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so, you no, know, depending on the nature of the data source is how, how you expose the, the, sort of the URI space. So we give you a default option where right. uh, you give us uh, an EDM mapping. And if it is an arbitrary data source, which could even be your own business logic, then it's just uh, anything that it looks like a CLR object graph. Okay. If you're using the entity framework and, say, pointing to a database, by default, we build a URI space for you that is based on dynamic SQL, meaning you write URLs, but under the covers, we'll go generate SQL. Now, there are many scenarios where you don't want that to happen. You want a more sort of restricted uh, interface to your data, um, and uh, that could be, could have to do with wanting to enforce business logic or with predictability around query plans and such. If it is the latter, uh, you probably want to use store procedures for this, and we have a way of hooking up store procedures into the URI space Sure. So that uh, you can sort of take over a piece of the URI space. You can say, for example, I don't want you to say slash customers and get all of the customers in that container. Yeah. Uh, I want you to go through a special URI that is called My Good Customers. Mm. And uh, My Good Customers is actually takes a couple of arguments and it's actually a store procedure call under the covers, uh, although the client cannot really t- tell that. Right. Uh, um, the only thing you cannot you can sort of observe from the client is that query composition is not allowed, meaning the store procedure is by design fixed, right? And that's sort of a feature of store procedures. Mm-hmm. So you cannot use custom sorting options or you cannot use uh, filtering or stuff like that because the store procedure has a, a, a predefined interface.
2: So views might become uh, popular in this yes, in certainly. The sense, definitely certainly.
3: views work really well. Uh, table values functions also work really, sure. really well because uh, you can take arguments uh, which views you know don't, uh, but at the same time the output is composable, which means you can still support sorting and searching and you know, yeah. all that stuff that is usually handy when you want to create a more flexible data interface.
2: So, if I could just summarize, then even though it looks like, you know, it, it looks like you're just selecting from tables and that's all you can do. No, that's not all you can do. That's the default behavior built into the URI, the the sort of the, the feature set. But just because it's there doesn't mean you can't have store procs in the back end.
3: Yes, yes, absolutely. And you can also do, like, sometimes you want to inject some business logic in the middle tier, like uh, sure. inject filters based on joins with our tables and stuff like that. So we have a query composition mechanism that allows you to, to sort of inject bits and pieces of the query as we build a bigger query that is going to send, be sent to the database. And the format
2: uh, is just pure XML? Is it entity XML? What, what do you get back?
3: Uh, fr- you mean from the HTTP interface? Yes. Uh, what you get back is, actually, we use, uh, we use standard HTTP content negotiation, content type negotiation. And uh, so we support, right now we support two formats. We have uh, an Atom-based format, uh, that hmm. is, is literally, is we turn the data into feeds and entries in That's Atom cool. terminology. That's cool. And uh, we actually, it's not just Atom, we actually support APP, uh, the Atom Publishing Protocol, which uh, brings enough semantics that for us to map it to the basic actions on the entities.
2: So was RSS not rich enough for this?
3: Well, uh, yeah, RSS is, is the feed format, but it doesn't define an interaction model. Like, there is no uh, update semantics built into it. and right. um there is uh in general there is like in atom there is a way of of discovering for a given service what are all of the containers or feeds available uh and um yeah. and in general sort of there is more bits and pieces that uh are more complete than in the r s s case i mean in the r s s that it's not atom based uh, or or not um, right what's, whats what's what's the name of the there is a feed consolidation format o um, just r s s two o without uh, atom um so, but in general, so RSS is mostly a format, and uh, what we need is more like a protocol. Yeah. And app defines sort of a whole protocol. Um, so. Uh, not only it says what is the feed format for the output but it says for example what are the semantics of when you say an http put against an entry you know against the feed in the store how what what are, what is the expected result of that it defines how to uh deal with links between between things and and stuff like that so it was actually uh it mapped surprisingly well to what we were trying to do um, and further you know it's already a well established you know popular popular format and protocol so it was uh it was sort of a very, very, a relatively easy choice for us to go for it. Um, that's one of the formats. Now the service is defined, is designed so that it can actually support multiple formats. So Atom is one of them, and uh, App. We also support uh, a JSON-based format, and the protocol is very similar to the Atom one, but the format cool. is follows the or uses the the JavaScript Object Notation uh um the ajax people will be very happy about that yes exactly this is for sort of people working on ajax applications where you you know receive the data on the client and you want to use it as regular javascript objects so if you trust the source you can just eval the answer from the service and bang you have objects and um in fact the json payload is designed for for being friendly to the developer so we try to sort of avoid too many spurious uh, control information fields and stuff like that embedded in the payload. We have some, but they are placed so that they don't get in the way for the most part. Okay. Um, And uh, so for now, we're thinking we're going to start with these two formats. We may introduce more formats in the future. Like uh, the mechanism is there to introduce formats because we simply take, you know, they accept header and HTTP, which is the usual way of doing this, and then on the way back we send you the content type that matches the accept header if we can match it uh, but the fact so, that you support
0: two makes it plain to me you're planning to support more
3: yeah i mean uh, we don't have concrete plans now of, of any one in particular but uh we we do think that over time we will get asked by different scenarios for, from different customers to to introduce more and more formats into the system and we'll probably slowly introduce uh, introduce them as we rev the versions of the system. So, is it built with
2: a provider model? Is it easy to swap those things in and out?
3: It is. So, we, internally it is, but right now we're, we we um, we're not exposing it publicly, and we're going through the debate of whether or not we should do it. Um, my primary concern with exposing them publicly is that, like, I really don't want to invent yet another serialization stack for the .NET platform. Right. And um, so, the Astoria So, the story requirements for serialization are very specific. Uh, this is not. Like, definitely not a general-purpose mechanism to take objects and put them over an HTTP head. Uh, the goal of Astoria is to provide, you know, substantially more semantics than that, because, uh, I mean, that's the value out of the system. Like, just turning objects into XML is, is something that has been sort of extensively explored, and we have we have very good support for it in other parts of the platform already. So... Um, in Astoria, we have very constrained semantics about you ca- what is legal or not, or what is expected from a serialization format. Things like so, all of the objects have links to the to other objects they're related to. Every object has a URI that this that identifies the location of that object and where you cannot do operations on that objects. And in general, uh, it has a set of ex- you can uh, set a, a set of expectations uh, because it's a sort of a more. Um, specific system so that clients can make assumptions and leverage those those uh those particular uh, characteristics of the format to sort of do to provide value add services on the client. Um uh, so that's why like I really hesitate whether or not we should we should allow custom formats to be plugged in.
2: Now um seeing as how you're su- you're supporting linked entities on the back end, are there any link enabled data stores that uh, th- or things that implement iQueryable that you find interesting?
3: Yeah, like in, so. That, I, I guess uh, that's one of the primary reasons why we layered on top of uh, of, of of link in general. Like we were looking at. Uh, let me give uh, like two seconds of background before I answer the question. Um, so if you look at what Astoria does, essentially it takes URLs, uh, it turns them into some form of query and then ships the query to a data source and then gets the results, formats them in whatever output the client asked for and then ships the results back to the client. Um, so, we chose link because it's a very, should be a very general purpose abstraction. It, it doesn't, like, things like SQL, for example, or even the the lower level provider model make a lot of assumptions about the data source and the nature of it. Uh, it's, those, are, those assumptions are required for sort of for lower level frameworks or richer frameworks that want to know the nature of the data source, but for something like Astoria, link was a very nice uh, uh, point for abstraction because it doesn 't say almost anything about the the underlying data source it 's just a very uh, simple way of of describing queries and exchanging queries between Astoria, which is a runtime and the actual data source uh, so now we can plug in uh link implementations that point to pretty much anything. Um, so, the ones, that, so we, the ones we are shipping is we have, uh, we have link to SQL, which is shipping in Orcas. We have linked to entities, which is shipping uh, together with the entity framework. And those, are, those two are sort of database, uh, database-oriented database link implementation. Uh, then we, uh, we have link to XML, which is uh, also shipping in Orcas. Um, which allows you to do an int- a number of interesting things uh what this means is as part of your service if you want to integrate data from somewhere or doing a server side mashup uh you can pull the data using uh, the http web client or something uh reshape it and filter it and so filter it and so on using xlink and then you plug that into Astoria to, s- to surface it to your consuming clients in a way that is uniform with the rest of your services um of course in this case it's not like in the database case where the query gets pushed down to the data source. It's more like you're doing the work in the middle tier. But, um, it's nice from the, from the perspective of, uh, it's a very easy way of pulling data in from somewhere else. Uni- unify the way it's surfaced and do- unify the way interaction model works in general. Uh, and then there is a lot of uh, smaller data or smaller implementations of Link, like subsets of Link, that are coming out out there that are very interesting because they target non-databases, which I which I think is where this thing is gonna uh, gonna become more and more popular over time. Like I've seen uh, everywhere from Link to Active Directory all the way to Link to Amazon and Link to Flickr. And yeah, it sounds like that. a
2: great mashup tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: I think uh, there's a great opportunity there because uh, like Link is a very expressive. Uh, query formulation mechanism. So having the ability to do that and uh, sort of to use the same tools and and same patterns uh, on this set of very, very broad and different data sources, I think it's a great opportunity.
0: You know, I was thinking about why you were using the entity framework, but I think I have my answer now. You know, going all the way back to uh, Carl's question about using stored procedures, that's really a capability of the entity framework, isn't it? To get underneath and control the way that data is accessed,
3: yes, yes, I mean the entity framework gives us goodness when when we're going against a database, entity framework is great uh because uh so it gives us this whole mapping thing, which uh, i it is what you're sort of mentioning, where uh you can map store procedures, you can map views you can uh, you can use the mapping to join tables together or to split tables apart to rename right. things to hide things um. So and the, the nice thing is Entity Framework comes with a nice tooling story that does all this. So it's a visual editor where you can describe your mapping to the underlying store. You can say what what is what is visible and what you want to remove from your schema and so on. So we by piggybacking into Entity Framework, we get a very very nice data modeling story.
0: Uh, it's a great set of tools for setting up the data model and then you're just sitting over top of that Yes. And I and I was thinking about stuff like the orders line items issue, that I'm going to request an order from you, and I expect the line items to be in there. Yes. Um, and if I guess I'm presuming if you're using the Entity Framework properly, that's just going to happen naturally.
3: Yes, I mean we use for that in Astoria we have a directive that is expand where you say uh, I'm asking for the orders. By the way, expand the order lines. And uh, we can actually tell that to the entity framework literally like that. We can say, we're, we're going to ask you for orders, and we want the order lines together.
0: Right. And, and, uh, and again, we, and we entity point entity to the advantage of using the entity framework is that is a capability that was built into the entity framework, and you're just exposing it uh, with the URI model.
3: Yes, yes. We literally translate this into an including directive, which is whatever directive in uh, during query formulation you would use if we we're manually using the entity framework. Uh, so, yes, I, Like nice thing about all of this is that We didn't have to invent uh, many things to sort of have a very nice story against the database. Um, And also, since uh, the entity framework supported link, it was great because uh, the way we do query composition, like translation and translation in general from URIs to queries, is we simply take the URI and we turn it into a link query. And if it is an entity framework, entity framework includes link to entities, which supports, uh, supports link. And if it is some other linked data source, sa- same deal. So we, from, in that particular perspective, we have a single code path that handles either scenario.
0: Yeah, so be, this seems like a great proof to me of the potential of the whole link and entity framework model for treating multiple data sources the same. Yep, yep. I feel yeah, very I- much like this is a 21st century ODBC because <laughs> I, I see you, you working on you both ends that. of the problem on the data source end of the problem where you're going through the entity framework and link to be able to get to all these different data sources and yep. on the the uh resource end of the problem where you're exposing via json or using atom so that we can get at that data in a way we're already using in our client space
3: yeah yeah absolutely yeah i i agree. i do agree. um Uh, I mean, I I guess it boils down to, it's all about sort of lowering the barriers for for sort of making data accessible across sort of this broad, very heterogeneous environment.
0: Well, and also not making us re-engineer to do that.
3: Yeah. (laughs) If I'm
0: already building an AJAX app, I really don't want to have to redo all of that to get at my data source. This looks to me like it would drop directly in and just be another uh, web service call to populate a chunk of data on an AJAX page
3: exactly and that's why we are so careful about not not inventing too much stuff like uh so we want this to just plug into the existing infrastructure right so uh, that's why we are so careful about staying uh on the rest side of things as much as we can meaning we use just plain http uh we uh, we use simply URIs to point to things. We use HTTP semantics like you know get and put and delete and so on to to make changes on the resources on the server. We even piggyback on on things like HTTP caching and HTTP authentication um, for for doing sort of standard authentication and caching work. So that if you have an existing infrastructure that does HTTP caching, for example. Uh yeah, I mean, the, the data services would also just get cached. I mean, we right. have, we have a mechanism to set the policies you want, because, yeah, the, the different data has different volatility. But in the end, we're just leveraging existing investments in dollars. Yeah, you
0: don't want to write a yet another caching mechanism.
3: Exactly. It's like, not only is expensive, but also, like, um, there are two aspects. One is, rolling a new one of the, each one of these things is very expensive. Not only for us, but for everybody that has to react in their own infrastructures. But I think there is a higher-order bit in this particular case, which is data now has become sort of a first-class element of the web, right? Like all of these mashups and all of these AJAX applications and so on are exchanging peer data with their services. Like UIs get lands on the client once, but then it's all about data exchanges, right? And these are environments you don't control at all. And uh, the only thing you can assume is that whatever piece of code you're running made it to the client through an HTTP GET. Right. So that that's the only thing you can assume about the visibility for from the client to the server. And uh, so we we want to make sure that under those rules the system works well. Uh, so we you know that that's why we we just use HTTP and so on so that we don't introduce additional noise or additional infrastructure requirements into existing systems.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting challenge, and it strikes me that you spent a lot of time learning what else was going on inside of Microsoft so you didn't write things you didn't need.
3: Yeah. Yeah, actually, inside and outside. Like, we've been trying to to sort of to leverage whatever was already sort of existing work in, in most of these aspects. Uh, the, the internal, sort of the internal facing part of Astoria, yes, we we used a lot of the inside technology. And uh, we happen to be already involved in many of these, like we are actively involved in the link work as well as in the entity framework work. Right? It's actually, uh, my, my team owns both the entity framework and Astoria, uh, like the team I'm uh, working. Um, right. And uh, then from the sort of, web-facing perspective, we used as much as uh, possible from what is already there, like r- ranging from HTTP to Atom to JSON. And in general, you know, whatever was out there was already invented, and it was uh, good. Even if it was not a perfect match, but it was good enough that we could make it work, we would stay with that.
0: I, I find it interesting that I think the CTP approach sets the barrier low enough that you could take chances on trying those near-fit technologies.
3: Yes, yes. Yes, okay. the whole ex- the whole experiment has been great from that perspective. Like we, so what we did with this with Astoria was something that uh, doesn't didn't happen that often, at least not before in Microsoft, and uh, so we had to fight it a little bit, but it was a good result in the sense that uh, we had a very early prototype early, ne- early this year before uh, the Mix conference, right. and um, what we did is we. Well, it was it was a proof of concept and it was kind of working well internally and we said okay wh- why don't we just go out there and just share whatever we have right now and uh, so we did that we packaged the the prototype into an MSI so people could install it wrote a few examples wrote a couple of documents and um, and say here's here's our thinking this is not a product it's not going to look like this uh, it's just what we're thinking the direction should be. And uh, it worked out great. we got a bunch of feedback, and we could, as you say, we could try all of these things and experiment with things that we may or may not sign up for moving forward.
0: Right.
2: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at
0: www.devexpress.com. So far, we've really focused on HTTP GET and not really talked about stuff like put and post and delete, which I don't think a lot of people know about. But this really is a two-way conversation that I can update data
3: through this mechanism as well as retrieve it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, most of the URIs in the system are read-write. I mean, some of them are read-only, like collections, for example. But right. all of the entities which are turned into resources are uh, read, write, if you choose so. I mean, of course, this is by default it's not read or write. You don't even see it. But if you change the policies so certain containers read, write, then uh, you use HTTP GET to retrieve something, and then uh, the HTTP uh, spec defines uh, a number of other verbs to do different things with the data, with the with the resources. There is an HTTP DELETE verb, for example, that uh, deletes the resource given by the URI which will translate into a delete in the underlying data source, whatever that means. Then it's up right. to the data source, of course, to to implement the thing. Like, for example, in the case of a database, we go delete the record. In the case of uh, sort of a custom data source, we ask for a deletion, and then the data source does you know whatever they want. he wants to do. Um, you know, Pablo,
2: while you were saying that, there's one word that just is ringing in my head loud and clear.
3: Do you know what it is, Richard? No. What is it?
0: Security! <laughs> <Yeah>. Security! <laughs>
3: <laughs> let me go through the two versions and then let me talk about security across the board. Okay, you bet. Um, so there is delete that delete stuff. Then there is uh, HTTP put, which means uh, replace a resource. Uh, like basically, you you give a new version of it, and you replace yeah, the old one update. with a new one. Yes, literally do an update. Um, although, strictly speaking, uh, put means replace. Uh, not everybody honors that, and uh, we're, there is a debate. Even these days, there is uh, quite a bit of noise like or buzz out there in the web about how to support sort of merge semantics and whether we should invent a patch verb or stuff like that. Uh, so the put, put could mean insert. Uh, some people let it mean insert. Uh, we, in particular in Australia, we only use put for, for update. Okay. And for insert, we use the post verb, Okay. Uh, like usually, the pattern we use is when you say put, the URL that you provide is to an existing resource, and we replace that resource. And when you say post, the URL you post you post to is the containing is the containing construct or the containing URL, and we will create something under that URL. And then on the way back from the post operation, we give you the location of the thing we created. There is a standard location response header in HTTP. So we give you the final location of the guy so we, you have it for future reference. Um, so uh, we actually support, the, those are the basic verbs. So there is get, put, post, and, and delete. There is other verbs like options and stuff, but those have more to do with the control infrastructure than with the runtime aspects. Um so the important thing about these verbs is that they define define a, a uniform interface in the sense that, in general, it doesn't matter what is the particular schema of a particular service you're talking to. These actions, are they are always there, and they always have the same semantics. I mean, of course, maybe, like, for a given user, you get a sort of a for, forbidden because you cannot delete something. But, uh, but in principle, it, they're always the same. So if something can be deleted, it gets deleted by the same action always, which is great from the... Uh, from the system layering perspective, because now, like other sort of cons- agents down the path, can make assumptions about what each of these actions means uh, for the next, for the next layer, or for the server layer in particular. Uh, of course, I mean, this means now you you're allowing uh access to your data in a way that is sort of read-write. Like now, if you have a, a let's say a web-facing service, that service actually allows, say, users to read and write data, and of course that will make a lot of people nervous. Uh, so right. we have a, uh, of course, we have a security story for this. I mean, the reality is that today, if you have any application that takes a, say, a post form, uh, where you fill a bunch of fields and then you click a submit button and it goes to the server, uh, you already have, you already receive, uh, sort of side effect in operations and, uh, and then you somehow enforce the security on the server. Very often it's like, uh, by, by sort of explicit terms, uh, and, uh, and then you perform the action based on whether or not the, the person that submitted the thing is authorized or based on, on some token or something. Uh, in the case of Astoria, uh, there are two aspects to security. One is ho- how do you know who's doing whatever it's doing, and the second is uh, how do you know whether, uh, once you know who's the guy that is trying to do some operation on your data source, whether or not you want to allow uh, a given operation. For the first part, which is the sort of the authentication part, um, we like Astoria is built on top of, of WCF, uh, or the Windows communication uh foundation and uh oh and uh, so we piggyback on a lot of the services of WCF and more in general when we are hosted inside asp.net we have all of the services of asp.net there
2: Yeah I mean I figured you had all the standard web uh you know forms authentication windows authentication all that exactly. stuff but if you're you know if you're a website you have to do all that stuff programmatically it pro- might not be something a lot of developers are used to doing Mhm so uh it's good to hear that you're using w c. f because now you can put your credentials in a config file and not worry about it
3: yeah in yeah in general uh like we for authentication we really really didn't want to invent a custom authentication scheme or anything like that, so what we're doing is we're reusing the the authentication infrastructure we make the authenticated principle available for the during sort of on execution on the server, but we Great. use regular WCA for ASP.NET authentication mechanisms. So whatever you are using to authenticate people on your site already can be used to authenticate people against your service.
2: That's very uh, cool. Uh,
3: that means that also you get sort of default implementations of things like digest authentication or or even HTTP basic for IIS and stuff like that are. Uh, sort of they, they are directly usable like you don't need to write something custom if you have a custom scheme then you have to write it but the nice thing is you have to write it just as much as you would have to for the rest of an ACRNet sure. or WCF application which we'll okay. just pick up the same thing
2: well that, that makes total sense uh, error handling what's the, st- what's the error handling strategy Before we get to Error,
3: let me make one more comment about security. Okay. This brief overview was about how how you figure out who's who's talking, right? There is a second aspect, which is you may not want just everybody, even once they are authenticated, to look at every piece of data or to change every piece of data. Uh, so we also have a like a, a mechanism where, as we are composing URLs to scan the different parts of the of the resource space that is presented through the interface, we actually have callbacks, so we, you can validate whether or not it is okay to jump through certain link or to explore certain container, oh. and uh, that allows you to build an access control mechanism that is. Um, both efficient because we let you push it down to the data source and also fairly expressive because you can express uh, sort of, uh, the access control by, by using also link queries. Uh, so this means that once you know who's talking, you can also tell exactly which resources or which entities are visible to that particular uh, agent.
2: That's cool because you can do the, author- the authorization in real time. So yeah. if, you know, if, if something happened on the server, you know, on the server side unrelated to users, you can you know flip a bit and direct people away from a certain service,
3: yeah certainly. you know if a, if
2: yeah. Facebook went down, for example, and you realized that you could return a certain uh error message that way, which gets us into error handling,
3: yeah, yeah, so error handling, so errors just like everything else, um we wanted to make it uh very h t t p ish so when we generate errors, we're very picky on sort of error codes and status codes. So we pick the right ones for each each one of the things that could happen. And um, what we do is we have our own few errors for sort of for, you know, whenever you are not allowed to see something or whenever uh, you send a malformed request or stuff like that. We also have a few for runtime errors that we may find in the server, like the data source itself may fail to deliver data or stuff like that. Um, and then we let the users layer errors in between for validation. So let's say you allow HTTP put to your, uh, you know, your customers, right? And to your customers container. So you go modify a customer entity. But you could say, well, you cannot modify customers in just any way. There are certain rules about consistency between fields, required fields, and, uh, fields that can only be modified by certain people and stuff like that. Uh, so we, we give you a mechanism where you can hook and you get called. You simply tell us what, when to call you for a given operation for a given resource. And um, so we will call you before pushing, the, pushing uh, changes down to the underlying system. Uh, so there's an opportunity for you there to check the in- incoming data. And if you don't like what you see, you can, you can always abort the operation by just throwing an exception yourself. And we'll turn that and send it back to the user.
0: Okay, that's fair enough. I'm just thinking of all the different areas where I would bump into errors like this. One of the ones that jumped out to me, and we sort of breezed on this, was when you uh, try and do a link-related task that hasn't been implemented for a given data source, like a put into uh, um, some kind of non-database store that it doesn't know how to handle... Link doesn't know how to handle that, and it's going to push back at the provider level.
3: Yes, and... uh... Yeah, in particular, update, since there is no uniform interface for update, like there is one for select. You know, for select, you can use iQueryable for composing queries. There's right. no update interface, and so we have a custom interface in Astoria, and uh, so we test for that interface. If the data source doesn't implement it, we tell you that this particular resource is read-only. Uh, so you get a, a whatever is called for method not allowed when you say put, for example.
0: Yeah, there's lots of variation in there. You could have a lot of fun trying to chase that down.
3: Yeah. Well... Um, so, the nice thing is, so in HTTP, there is a well defined method for saying which methods you like, for saying you ask me for, to execute a method that is not allowable or not supported by this particular interface. Right. So, at least you get that. Uh, but yeah, if you don't know the nature of the data source and you start to get in a glitch like this, we of course, we make a best effort. But if the error is coming from inside the data source, it's, it's as expressive as the data source can explain the error. So some of them are very nice and some of them are not.
0: Yeah, and therein lies the challenge of using all these different layers of products is you are dependent on them behaving well and letting you know what they could and couldn't do. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly.
3: So in general, you know, for rich data sources that are fairly sophisticated, like linked to entities or linked to SQL, this works out pretty well. For sort of uh, quicker and sort of shorter implementations that are done without that much care to detail, this can be tricky, certainly.
2: So there's a couple of acronyms in the in the documentation that I think are worth talking about because if okay. somebody downloads this and starts working with it, they might be a little confused. Um, specifically around resources, RDF, which people might know as the Reporting Data Format. I think that's the for the for the reporting services, isn't that right, Richard? Or yeah, is it RDL? that's the reporting
0: services one, but I don't think that's what you're using it it's here. R- for that. Well,
2: it's RDL anyway, a Reporting Data Language. But uh, this is Resource Description Framework, right?
3: Yes, that's right.
2: What is uh, tell us a little bit about that, and and also the acronym REST, which is uh, anybody who's doing any web service kind of stuff will know about.
3: Okay, so RDF is, as, as you said, it means Resource Description Framework, and it's, um, I mean, it's it's a way of representing data, and in particular Astoria uses the XML representation, but RDF is a sort of is a more abstract representation in general, and then there are various serialization forms of it, and um, so RDF is uh it's part of a of a bigger picture that uh folks working on, on the semantic web are using and um it's 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 you know it's very nice because it it's built out of very simple components like in r d f everything is uh, the basic component of information is a triplet and the triplet contains what you're talking about what aspect of the thing you're talking about you want to mention here and you and uh, what is the sort of the actual um uh the what wes- the actual assertion that you want to make about that particular property um, so, out of that simple model, you can build uh, like sort of very large bodies boat, uh, bodies of knowledge, and uh, you can uh, then explore that knowledge by using various query languages or or tools that support uh, RDF. And uh, there is also a, a related query language called Sparkle uh, that you can use to explore the data. Um, yeah, in the early days of Astoria, we that was one of the formats we explored with, uh, and uh, we introduced support for RDF to see what it would look like to support RDF. Uh, directly in the Astoria service. Um, uh, like, right now, we don't have it. Like, now we're building the production bits, which is sort of a different code base from the CTPs. We started we started from scratch. Um, okay. And uh, so right now, we don't have RDF in there. We're still debating, uh, you know, whether we should introduce it, when we should introduce support for RDF. And, I'm curious uh, as to
2: what, you know, what those arguments are like. I mean, what what's the argument on either side?
3: Um, so the argument for RDF has to do with... Uh, you know it's clearly becoming popular on the semantic web side of things um it's um it's a very it's a nice and expressive format which is nice um it, like it it's already invented so we don't have to build something and it's also like i i actually believe that over time there will be more and more tools that that speak r d f so i think from that from that perspective it is interesting uh arguments for not doing it now uh include the first of all the fact that and uh I know this is a controversial statement, but you know when we shipped the CTPs, we didn't get pretty much any user using using RDF that we don't we know of. Like people checked it oh. out, wow. but not much people used it.
0: Huh. Um, That's the best reason of all to sort of push that down in the development stack. Nobody needs it. Mm. You only have so much time for so many bits, so that would get a lower priority than the JSON implementation.
3: Yeah, exactly. And uh, I do know that there is a very active community of people working on RDF and related topics. So it's not like nobody's using RDF. It's just that maybe the intersection between developers that use uh, Astoria and developers that are building solutions on top of it is not the same that is using RDF or something like that. So bottom line is, so that's one aspect. And the other aspect is I'm actually not sure that RDF alone is enough, or whether we need to, like, f- to make it compelling, we need to go the next step and support, like, Sparkle, too. Sparkle is like a query language on top of RDF. And uh, and also, maybe we need to support uh, other aspects, such as RDF schemas or OWL, which is another way of defining ontologies on top of RDF. So, it's like, maybe to make a compelling offering that, w- that would get the attention of the folks that are using it, we need to go much, much farther and... Uh, w- uh, it's clearly not something we can do in a sh- in a quick iteration like the one we would want to do for V1. Uh, but the debate, debate is still out there, so you know, over time, who knows? Maybe we'll get to it if, uh, if we can build a compelling story and justify sort of spending the time building that. And REST, R-E-S-T. Okay, REST. So REST is. I guess these days it's like a fashionable thing to say, uh, but more in general. So REST is, stands for Representational State Transfer, and it's a result of a dissertation by Fielding, Roy Fielding. And uh, basically, so, I mean, I would highly recommend reading that that paper. It's very interesting. Um, uh, so what REST defines is uh, a set of patterns or, or a style. I think the, the term they use is an architectural style, uh that uh, that guarantees certain characteristics, that guarantees certain level of scalability and certain level of, of functionality in general. And uh, in REST, the key elements are uh, what is called a uniform interface, uh, which is what we talked about before. In HTTP, there's a very uniform interface where, where you have a fixed set of verbs, and uh, so action semantics are fixed and predefined by the system. And what changes is which resources you act on, but, but there no, there's no custom actions in the system. Uh, so also also REST focuses a lot on on allowing uh, proper layering, where each layer understands and can make some can make assumptions about the next layer up and down. Uh, this is for example in the in the in the context of the web, this is what allows for proxies and transparent caching like the ones used used for content distribution networks to work well because the system has been designed for layering from day since day one uh so this this these sort of multiple layers transparently stack on one another and give sort of value add services on top of the underlying service um so um and it also rests keys a lot on on simple and stateless interactions between the consumer agent and the producer agent for a given resource. Um, okay. So in general, if you if you sort of read the the document, you'll see that and uh, this expi- is explicitly discussed in the in the dissertation. Uh, basically, this model, like an instantiation of this model, is the web itself, and uh, sort of a lot of the arguments there describe why the web scales the way it does and why okay. building applications following this model yields uh, applications that should be, in principle, as scalable and as flexible as the web.
2: So it's good to know that you're you're following the fundamentals of good web design practices. Basically, I think that's all you're
0: saying by using uh, rest. yes, yeah. But and yeah. also not making any definitive decisions here. These right. other things could be put in at any time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, shifting
2: gears uh, to the topic of concurrency, okay. and I'm wondering if there, if that's even a concern of. Uh, of Astoria, or is that left up to uh, the implementer of the data, you know, the data store? Mm
3: -hmm. I mean, concurrency, I think think concurrency for consistency, like changing at the same time. Optimistic,
2: pessimistic, you know, uh, what do we do about that? Is it your standard first-come, 1st serve concurrency, or is that even not your issue? Uh,
3: No, it is very much an Astoria issue, and um, so we have a couple of options for it. so clearly, yeah, if if you don't do anything about it at any layer, you will get uh, last one wins semantics, which may or may not be appropriate depending on the nature of the application you're building. Um, the, the other two things that we we or the two mechanisms that we have in place is one is if the if the thing you're targeting as a data source is looks like a traditional database and you have something like say timestamps or you use some of the columns as your concurrency tokens then you can round-trip those those tokens between the clients and the servers. So you can require incoming payloads to have those values in addition to the values you want to modify or create. And um, we will check them at, 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 uh, at update time. So, for example, let's say you have a timestamp column, which becomes a member of the resource that is a big number, basically. And uh, so on the way back from the client to the server, say on an update operation, uh you can include the, the fields you want to change and the original value for the timestamp of course. And we will go check that automatically. So if there is a concurrency exception because somebody else changed the resource okay. the time you got it, uh then we will fail the update saying uh sort of five hundred something, this is a like there is a, a sort of an update conflict on the server. Uh then on top of this, we we'll, we we didn't build it yet, but we're, we are we are we having the plan to build a mechanism that is more HTTP friendly and is based on E tags. Like HTTP already has a way of doing this. Uh, e tags, like did HTTP you say? The HTTP protocol defines the use of an E tag, uh, which is one is an is a header that is exchanged between the client and the and the server that describes basically the version of the resource. So on the way back, you okay. can say. This update is based on this version of the resource, and the server can say, Well, look, the one I have now is a different version, so I'm not going to allow this thing to go through.
0: And, and this, e, are you talking about the e tags that are part of HTTP? Yes, yes. Really? Yeah. What it's, a it's, clever idea. I mean, this has always been there. It's just one of those technologies that it's ignored most of the time.
3: Yes, exactly. There's no, no reason it, to use it. Turns it turns out to, to mean exactly what we need it to mean. Wow. So that's why I was saying before, like, in general, we're trying hard not to invent things.
0: Yeah, it's just using the specifications that are there yeah. that largely haven't been used.
3: Yes, yes. Like uh, one of the funny facts is like if you walk these days through the sort of the offices here from the in the guys in the Astoria team, you will see that most of them have on their desk they have like RFC two six one six, which is you know HTTP something, and uh, same with the Atom RFC and all those. Everybody has that printed out and right next to their keyboards and uh, keyboards, and they're sort of everybody's trying to be very conscious about how much we can leverage of what is already there.
0: Yeah, 2616 is the 1.1 spec of HTTP.
3: Yeah, yeah. So everybody, you know, everybody got familiar with it. Same thing with it. You know, Atom is basically two specs. There is one, or two RFCs. There is one for Atom, and there is one for APP, which became an RFC just like two weeks ago or so. So we're using that.
0: Okay, I'm going back through my memory of this conversation so far and thinking about what have I missed and uh, one of the things that was on my mind, we talked briefly about that whole idea of using the entity framework to package together, say, orders and line items. When it comes to a post of that, can I create a construct of all of that data and post it as one shot?
3: Yes, yes, you can. So we support this thing we call deep inserts and deep updates. Where, okay. I mean, this huh. is exactly the scenario that you described. like. You never insert a, an order line, for example, just just because and just for by itself, right? Like it, right, it makes right. no sense from the application perspective. Uh, so why build an infrastructure with that assumption in place? So what we do is like we allow you to like um, let me step back. So Astoria, in general, the entity framework uh, is a is a record-oriented system, right? And even things like Atom, you can consider each one of the entries are records. So all of these things are records. And uh, so the way we see the system is there is records and there is links between records. And uh, what you can do on 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 the put or post path, which is the update or insert path, is you can say, look, instead of giving you something and linking it to something else, I will expand everything in line, and I will I'm going to give you the whole thing in a single go. So you can for for example send the order and the order lines, and the order lines may have the links to the products and so on. So you build a whole graph, and then you send it in a single go, and then on the server we'll turn it back, we'll take it in like split it apart into records and do the right thing on the underlying store.
0: When this is inherently transactional, then you write the whole order or none of it.
3: Yes, as a side effect, you get uh, you get uh, atomic atomic operations, and of course, this is up to the data source to like how much of the transaction characteristics you get is up to the data source. We so right. we, we as Astoria, we push it, we build the graph on the server side and push it to the data source as a single go. Uh, whether the data source guarantees atomicity and. Uh, Uh, more more than that, whether the data source gives isolation for this so that no sort of transient state is visible outside of this transaction is up to the data source. Like in a database, you typically get this, but in a non-database resource, uh, this is not as easy to, to guarantee.
0: And we're, of course, at this point thinking of a homogeneous data source. If you start getting into a distributed data source, this gets way more
3: complicated. Yeah, if you want to cross data sources, yeah. I mean, it gets complicated when you want to unify semantics, as you say. Uh, because, right. you know, the, varying data sources have very different capabilities. And uh, there are some of these aspects that are extremely hard to implement. Like isolation is, you know, it's is, is a very difficult thing to, to achieve. And even atomicity, atomicity in a distributed system is very hard. Uh, yeah, so and, and
0: ultimately this is not a Astoria's responsibility. It's barely the entity framework's responsibility. The entity framework should just be manifesting the concept of that larger construct but it's ultimately implemented at the provider level through link.
3: Yes, yes, yes. In the case of the entity framework, we use the ADO provider model. And in the case of the other link data sources that do not go through the entity framework, then it's up to the data source to do sort of whatever they think is the right thing for the semantics of the underlying data source.
0: Does this also open a window to real batch operations where I could fire up
3: 20 customers at a go? We Yeah, we we have that in the – we didn't implement it yet, but we have that in the list of things we want to do before V1. We'll see. Oh, okay. If, uh, we'll see if everything goes well and we do it. Uh, and the reason is, you know, it's the same thing. It's very rarely you modify one resource at a time. Uh, typically, you like each activity or each operation consists of an, an, a number of effects in the database uh, or whatever is on the underlying data source. So we want to make sure that we can model these as a single operation. So we're thinking of supporting uh, something like a change set construct or something like that. So you can do this uh, uh, sequence of related or unrelated modifications in a single go.
0: That's an interesting idea. And and now I start thinking about beyond Ajax. This is not just a web service wrapper. This could yeah. be a great uh, source for a disconnected client. And so yes. those kinds of features would be powerful for me, uh, on my disconnected client, to be able to push that stuff back post-facto.
3: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think... I think uh, AJAX is, one, is only one scenario for this. I think disconnected clients is clearly another scenario. And also, uh, uh, headless services, where you have a service that really doesn't have a website fronting it, it right. your thing is just a service. And what you do is, then you have other consumers out there that will do something out of the service. Uh, so, you know, as, as standalone data services become more and more relevant, then this, I think this will become uh, more and more commonplace out there.
2: Absolutely. Okay, Pablo, uh, we're coming down to the end of the show here. You want to point us to some resources? I mean, we'll link to them on the show, but uh, tell us what's out there and where can we get it and what do you, what's required in order to use it?
3: Yes, absolutely. Um, so the two places to go is one is the Astoria Team blog, which sits at http uh, slash slash uh, blogs.msdn.com slash Astoria Team altogether. Uh, that blog contains we actually we're following a very open design process, so whenever we close on a design topic or we think we are uh, have a reasonable idea about it, we just post it there for people to comment on it um, cool. so it 's a great place to give feedback and actually give uh, early Early sort of approval or pushback on on sort of the various ideas we're working on for the story. There's
2: some great documentation there too. There's doc files you can download.
3: Yeah, there is there is a few documents there as well, uh, so you can do some reading on the introduction and so on. And then the general uh, data team page uh, on the MSDN site uh, sits as uh, MSDN dot dot com slash data. Great. And uh, there you can you can link to everything from Astoria to Entity Framework to Link and uh, all the related technologies.
2: Pablo Castro, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Hey, thanks. It was great. Thanks for your time.
2: A very, very good discussion, and uh, I hope uh, everybody got as much out of it as I did. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.